they tend to connect with other kids who are on the streets and they help them kind of learn the ropes. You know, here may be somewhere that you could go that would be safe or you should avoid this. And so there is some camaraderie among young people who are in that situation. They're really just thinking about like, what's my next move? How can I get some food? How can I get uh, clean clothes and things like that? So it's a lot of energy spent on keeping yourself safe, getting the physical things you need to just survive the next day. So it's a very much in the moment type of mindset. You're not thinking about school. You're not thinking about dreams for the future. I'm Tim Bickett, a grain and cattle risk management advisor from Worthington, Minnesota. And you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today we sit down with Pat Halterman-Holmes of the Youth in Need organization. Youth in Need helps at-risk youth get the resources they need, oftentimes kids that are unhoused or living in between places. This is a really interesting subject matter and can be a little heavy when this is a population that we don't see very often. We're going to get to the interview in just a moment, but first, we've been doing a lot of legacy interviews while traveling, and if you've thought for a long time, I'd love to capture the stories of my family, maybe an entire family tree but I can't get everybody to St. Louis, well, then I'd like you to reach out to me, vance at legacyinterviews.com, to write and say, hey, we have this many family members, we'd like to get something set up, and maybe we can come to your town and record these. We've done this a bunch of different ways. Sometimes a family has enough members that we can do the entire trip just for their family members, and sometimes people find multiple families to join together to do one larger project. If you're interested in learning more about how we could come out to where you are to record the life stories of your loved ones, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with Pat Holterman-Holmes. Pat Holterman-Holmes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, Vance. So are kids really running away today, like in today's day and age? You know, you think about kids running away, and it's almost this nostalgic, like back in the 70s, kids would run away so they could smoke pot. Um, We do see kids leaving home. Um, They're more often, I think, kicked out and pushed out um, um, because of family disputes. Um, Sometimes it's over their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, So it's, it's I would say it's complicated. Um, The story of the the runaway is uh, is not just like they don't want to follow the rules, right? It's usually much more complicated um, family dynamics. And we use the term runaway and homeless and street youth, and it really encompasses the more of the the variety of reasons that young people become homeless, right? Um, It could be running away, it could be family poverty, Um, Sometimes it's because they're in foster care and they run away from a foster home placement um, because they want to be with their biological family um, or because of abuse. And so kids often will run away from from home, whether it's a foster home or their, their family home for reasons of abuse or neglect or what we see. We see a lot of um, parent drug use um, and kids feeling really unsafe because of their parents' behavior. And sometimes it is um, that the youth doesn't want the structure or they don't want to follow rules or they want to u- use drugs and that's not permitted. So the reasons are really um, are really varied and complicated. I used to live in way northern California, and it was quite common to see kids that were under the age of 18 to like be running away or to mm-hmm. you know be hitchhiking. 
But mm-hmm. in the St. Louis area, I never see it. They're very hidden. And I think there's different reasons for that. I think the the way St. Louis is situated, we don't have the massive <coughs> numbers. Um, but on any given night, there's probably at least twelve to 1,500 young people that don't have a sta- safe place um, to go. And what happens more in St. Louis is what we use the term couch surfing, right? So young people are going from place to place. So they don't have a family, they don't have safety, they don't have stability, but they technically have a roof over their head. They may be um, swapping sex to have that couch to sleep on um, or engaging in other dangerous um behaviors, but they're not as, we don't have a a super visible street youth population where they're camping out and things like that that you see sometimes in in bigger cities. So they're they're rather hidden. They also blend in. You know, youth are really good at uh, blending in. They don't want to stand out. Um, And so when you see a group of youth, whether it's, you know, at um, on the Del Mar Loop or somewhere, um, there may be homeless youth among them. And you don't, you don't necessarily know that. And so tell me about your organization. So I am the CEO of Youth in Need, and we serve um, the entire Eastern Missouri region with a variety of programs for children, youth, and families to help them find safety and hope. Um, one of our programs and the reason we were founded was to, ho- to help runaway and homeless and street youth find safety and find hope for a positive future. And so we do that through a, a whole range of programs, everything from street-based outreach, where we have teams of folks who are literally out on the streets connecting with young people and providing resources to um, emergency housing, emergency shelter, longer term housing supports that also include um, counseling uh, and mental health, mental health support, job assistance, and those types of things. So tell me about the type of person that becomes an outreach, you know, that goes and finds who these youth are. That is such a great question. They are uh, they are a rare breed of people. Some of them have been formerly homeless or experienced a lot of hardship themselves. Um, you know, we don't have degree requirements, right? It just it takes a special kind of person who really connects with youth and is able to, you know, to form that um, that r- rapport pretty quickly and develop trust. The young people that we are um, outreaching to often do not trust adults. So it's not like they just pull up or walk up and kids are like, oh, come on, you know? Um, So it's really by being very casual, by maybe offering them if they need a bottle of water, if they need a snack, and we carry those types of things, and then striking up a conversation that then can lead to finding out what their situation is. And so it's really about meeting them um, where they where they are. It's got to be really tough because I would imagine there are people that approach them with kindness that are you know less kind that are actually looking to to um, pick them up for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. It, yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, there's a statistic out there that at something like seventy five or eighty percent of young people. Um, are approached about um, getting involved in sex trafficking within like three days of becoming homeless. Even in a place like St. Louis? Even in a place like St. Louis. So tell me about the type of person that becomes homeless, like the the young person. How old are you finding? And I say, I say homeless. I guess I'm using the yeah. Youth experiencing homelessness is the term that we that we use. Um, so you're you're right on with that. You know, it's very different situations. I think some are. Um, Younger teens, 14, 15, 16, more often what we see are 16, 17, 18, 19, you know, youth and young adults. Um, More boys or girls? Both. 
it's 50-50. 50-50. Wow. Mm -hmm. There do tend to be a few more resources for girls. So I would say at times it skews slightly more to more male. Um, but it's everything from, um, and we have young moms with their babies who are on the streets. Oh. We have youth who have, um, you know, their family has become homeless and um, there is in a shelter and the shelter doesn't have room for older boys, um, for example, or older kids. Um, we have kids who, as I said, have run away from the, the foster care system and want nothing to do with that. Um, some, sometimes they, you know, they're not homeless because of mental health issues, but often they develop mental health issues because it's very traumatic to live on the streets, um, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, feeling um, like you have to do a lot to keep yourself physically safe. Um, it's, it's really about survival, right? So it's not about being, being healthy. <laughs> it's about merely, um, surviving from day to day. And, you know, I think about the, you know, people often think, well, they made bad choices. Well, they didn't have any good choices. You know, when you're having to choose between, um, stealing or starving, um, that's not much of a choice to have to make, Right. And what are the demographics? Are these white kids? Are they so? Black? It's it's everything. I think statistically, they um, they um, are disproportionately black, disproportionately Hispanic, disproportionately teen parents, and disproportionately um, LGBTQ. So so there's definitely white kids, and there's and there's middle class. I, I would say it skews more toward kids living in poverty, but we absolutely. Um, here in the St. Louis area have had kids from wealthy families who, um, for a variety of family dynamics or because they were gay, um, became became homeless. And that's a thing these days. If a child mm -hmm. is gay, they're thrown mm -hmm. out of the home? You know, it, tragically it is. It really is. And I think we were seeing that a lot maybe 20, 30 years ago. And there's been a resurgence of that. I think there's a lot of just really negative rhetoric out in the world um, these days around LGBT people. And so we've we've been seeing that again uh, more and more. Wow, that's shocking to me. Yeah. You know, I've been around the ag community for, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 years now. Mm -hmm. And I can remember, like, they've made a, a giant transformation in, in that space where mm -hmm. It might have been seen as something that people would hide away. They didn't mm -hmm. want people to know they had a gay son, but like mm -hmm. now, not not that big of a deal. Right. So to hear yeah. you say there's a resurgence mm -hmm. is surprising to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, and not good, right? right? We want all of our young people to feel valued, to feel visible, and to be able to be who they are. That's how people thrive is by being your own unique self. And so um, we see that with gay kids. We see it with, um, especially with um, trans and gender non-conforming youth. There's a lot of misunderstandings around um, around transgender issues, non-binary. And um, I think that leads to people being fearful and hateful. What should people understand that you see that they're not? Well, I, I think one misunderstanding is that people think there's um, that kids are being influenced to be um, to be trans or to be gay, like as if being exposed to other gay people or trans people or media is going to is going to make them that way. And that's that's not true. It's simply not true. There have always been gay and trans people, and that's something that happens from the inside. There's not, um, you know, external influences can help support someone and make it more 
uh, make them feel more comfortable with being themselves, but it doesn't cr create them to be to be gay or trans, if that makes sense. Yeah. So this is an area I know so very little about. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask questions that might might be um, uh, n not very well articulated. That's okay. But when I see the rise in trans, mm -hmm. I often think of the a pattern that I saw when I was growing up, which there was this big movement. I think people would call it goth. Right. Mm -hmm. Where people all of a sudden are wearing very dark clothes. They're wearing dramatically different makeup. And there was this huge fear that this was going to lead towards like, you know, Satanism. Satanic. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> is this the same thing as that or is it different? It's it, it is different. I mean, that is really a trend. And being being trans is not a trend. It is more acceptable in our society, the same way you talked about gay people and the ag industry. Like it used to be you had to hide, but it's much more open. So I think we see more trans kids because they feel more free to be themselves in general in the world. Um, it's not because they weren't there before. And so while it's true that some youth, they may, you know, youth can play with their identities, right? Um, I mean, I, I rocked a, you know, a, a little, punk hairstyle when I was in high school back in the in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, How we can try. It? it wasn't that punk. I mean, you know, I lived in St. <laughs> Charles. It really wasn't that punk. Um, but we can try on different identities. And so youth may like, you know, um, try, you know, play with gender a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And there's a lot more fluidity these days as far as clothing and different things. But as far as how they actually feel and how they identify, that is a deeply internal. And it's something that they have known about themselves for a very long time. And the conflict between what a child is coming to as their identity and the parents is prompting people to have so much conflict that the children either leave or are thrown out? Yes, Tell me about the experiences mm -hmm. or what are you seeing out there with this? Yeah, we're seeing, um, and, and it's not the only reason kids get kicked out for sure, but we definitely are seeing that. And it's just really, um, you know, in some cases the parents will say, you, you know, you can't be that way at my home. And the, the child can't not be that way, right? They can they can act differently, but the, the pain of that is worse than the pain, honestly, of, of being kicked out you know, of having to um, to hide a significant part of themselves. And so, you know, we offer services that are open and um, we um, let youth express their identity um, however they want to. You know, it's not hurting anyone. And and um, and they're often much more, um, you, you know, much happier, um, have better relationships with people when they feel like they can really be who, be who they are. And honestly, um, trans youth are at um, an alarmingly high rate um, for for suicide, um, and it's not because there's something th that being trans is a mental health issue in and of itself. It's not, but because of all these negative messages from society and from feeling like you have to hide and that you're so misunderstood, that can lead some youth to feel so desperate that they think about taking their lives. Yeah, it seems very complicated to understand uh, what one would do if they if they say, I have these values, mm -hmm. and so I want to raise my children with these values. But then you run into the conflict of the child then saying, well, then I'm going to leave and the danger that a child would be in. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, how, as a person that's seen what happens when children are out on the street, how mm -hmm. would you recommend a parent that has those values handle it? I wish they would they would reach out and learn more because it's um, I think that they would see that it's not really a values issue, and that um, you know when we learn more, we do we, we you know we do better when we when we learn more, and that it's really a not not under 
not understanding. And it's not that they're something that their child has has chosen, it's who their child is. And I think most parents, you can try to connect that with the, um, that their love for their child and their desire for their child to be healthy. And I think there have been many parents who initially were very upset um, and did not understand, um, but later grew to understand and to see um, how much happier um, and healthier their child was when they were allowed to be who they are. So let's zoom the camera back out mm-hmm. to like in general, a child, mm-hmm. uh, let's say a 14-year-old girl it, um, has been kicked out of her house or is running away, mm-hmm. whatever the reason is, what's their experience like? You said in the first three days you think they've been approached for sex trafficking. What, mm-hmm. what other things do you know mm-hmm. about their experience? You know, I, they're often trying, the, especially initially, they're trying to reach out to people that they may know that they could that they could stay with. Um, but they, they tend to connect with other kids who are on the streets and they help them kind of learn the ropes, you know, here may be somewhere that you could go that would be safe or you should avoid this. And so there is some camaraderie among young people who are in that situation. Um, you know, sometimes they reach out for help, but often they don't. And so they're really just thinking about like, what's my next move? How can I, um, how can I get some food? How can I get uh, clean clothes and things like that? So it's a lot of energy spent on keeping yourself safe and um, and getting the physical things you need to just survive the next day. So it's a very much in the moment type of mindset. You're not thinking about school. You're not thinking about dreams for the future, which is heartbreaking, right? You want you, Your little girl probably thinks about what she wants to do in the future, dreams about things. And I know that you would want that for her. And we all want that for our kids. And these kids are really just focused on survival. They're focused on keeping their things safe. So if they may just have a backpack with a few items in it, and that's very precious to them. And so making sure that that doesn't get stolen. So you're thinking a lot about keeping yourself safe from being a victim of a crime um, and and trying to find some safe place um, to sleep, um, some place to be during the day where you don't stand out. You know, they're often not wanting to come to the attention of authorities. Um, because they do not trust that anybody in authority would help them, right? Where, and that's not true in most cases, but um, they're really trying to be kind of under the radar. I mean, my sense is that in the past, there used to be truant officers, or that's what they always right. told us. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but if you were in my small town of 4,000 people and you were in the middle of the day out on the streets, mm-hmm. somebody would be like, why aren't you in school? Right. But in a place like St. Louis, you could see a young person and right. not think much of right. it. Right. And you know what is interesting, and this surprised me that um, that some of these young people do keep going to school, and um, which is kind of amazing. So they don't have a safe place to sleep. They're going here and there every night, um, but they they go to school. And then sometimes the way that that um, someone at a, a caring teacher or a counselor may notice that they've been wearing the same clothes, they don't smell so good. Um, and, and you know, we hope that they have those trusting relationships. And then we get calls a lot from schools that someone is discovered to be um, homeless um, in and they're actually attending school. If they don't have a place to go, they don't have friends that'll let them mm-hmm. couch surf, where do they go? I mean, we hope that they call us, and that's why we're out on the streets and trying to um, to connect with them and come to our shelter. And there's a couple of other shelters in town, Covenant House and Epworth in St. Louis, do great work. Um, but there's there's we found them camping under 
bridges. Um, there's, you know, things you may drive by and not notice, but there's, you know, a culvert or something, and there will be people, um, people in there, abandoned buildings. Um, even in the suburbs, we've had kids who were, um, who in some cases for a quite extended time, lived in d- detached garages, you know, oh. at someone's, behind someone's house. Wow. Um, they will often seek help a little bit more when the weather gets cold. You know, that's when I really worry about young people who are completely un- unhoused. Yeah, as a person that's done camping and having uh, one night miserably in the cold right. or cold and wet, like that's like something traumatizing. Even if you even if you have a warm place to go right. home to at the end of the at the end of the camping trip, mm-hmm. so imagining having that be in perpetuity and not knowing where you can get safe. Mm-hmm. So kids, when they're running away from a foster home, they have to be a little concerned that if they get brought into the system, they may have to go back to a foster system that they ran away from. Very much so. And so they're, they're pretty good at staying, at staying hidden. Um, but, and they run away for a variety of, of reasons, you know, in our, in the foster care system in Missouri, um, we have, we have almost twice as many kids per capita in the foster care system as any, as other states, as the national average. And it's not because parents abuse their kids more in Missouri. Um, And the main reason that kids come into foster care um, is poverty, is neglect, which is really often equated with poverty, right? And so it's the parents not having enough resources. There certainly are some horrific cases of true abuse and true neglect, and this is not intended to minimize, and I'm glad that the system is there for those kids. But too often, um, our system separates kids from their families when they don't have enough resources. And honestly, it would be cheaper and more beneficial and less traumatic to help families with those resources and help them stay together safely than removing kids. And so you get these kids in the foster care and they desperately, they have a bond with their parents. They desperately miss their parents. And so sometimes the foster home is fine. They, their needs are being met. They don't hate it there, but it's not their parents. You know, so in some cases they're running so that they can be with their, with their parents. So you mentioned like uh, was it 1,200 to 1,500 mm-hmm. per night in yeah. the in the area? That's the estimate. Is that growing? Is it shrinking? Is it staying the same? You know, it's hard to, um, it. it's always hard to count. This is a population that's very hard to count. I think it, um, we have seen it increase. It's, it, um, the pandemic had a weird effect where kids got even more hidden during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, and so it's like really the numbers went down and we knew that wasn't true. Right. But we were just having a harder time finding the youth. But we're definitely seeing that um, that pick up. What are the questions that people should have about unhoused children that, that maybe they don't have because they're not thinking about it? You know, I think to really you're asking very probing and insightful questions of who these youth are, because I think it's it's easy to just kind of think of surface things and think these are bad kids, they're criminals, are they, they're drug addicts or something like that. And the reality is much, much more complicated. And so I wish people wouldn't, they think about youth who are homeless, they would think about kids that they know and think about their own kids. Cause it could be, it, you know, we, we tend to think those are those kids that are over there and not our kids. And I think of it that they're all, all of our kids. And um, I, I think we all should be very, very concerned that there are young people um, that don't have that opportunity 
um, to grow up, to dream, and and to to thrive. And that's lost potential. It's lost economic potential for our society, and it's just a loss of human uh, potential that these youth have. Um, great potential, many gifts. Um, we have so many. I mean, they're all unique, um, but some are very talented artists or musicians and v- brilliantly smart at math and all the different things. They are just regular kids, um, and they're in a situation um, that they, they shouldn't have to be in. I mean, the average age for young people to become, you, you're not going to want to hear this because you are you have a three-year-old, but the average, do you know what the average age for a young person to become completely financially independent from their parents is? 26. (laughs) And, you know, talk to your friends that have adult children, and I'll bet you some of them are still on their parents' phone plan, even if they're living on their own. They're on their parents' cell phone plan or their health insurance, and the parents are there to provide that safety net, right? Like, I have a 28-year-old and her, you know, her car broke down last week. Well, she knew mom and dad would be there to help if needed, right? Um, and our kids don't have that. So they're 17, 18, 19 and having to really make their way in the world um, alone without that safety net. And that's that's really, really yeah, hard. And I think that safety net, like even you talk about your kids or my kids, like I think it's actually a relatively new invention that we have this idea that you get to be 18 or 21 and you're out the door. Because if you even look at the architecture of most of the middle class homes, they were designed to have grandma and granddad on one floor, mom and dad on another, you know, the kids that are just just getting older Mm -hmm. on another floor and having that Mm multi-generational and then families living within several blocks of each other. And, Mm -hmm. And I know from doing all these legacy interviews that many, many people grew up this way. If you're in your 80s now, you generally grew up with family all around you. And so this like, you know, we think of it as the nuclear family being like uh, the natural state. And I think it's actually really stripped down from all the other molecules that are that are typically connected. And so to be completely disconnected and free floating, I mean, would be overwhelming even for a 45-year-old man, let alone a, a child with very limited ability to generate income or know, know who to trust, these mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there, I totally agree with you. And I think there's so much benefit in having that extended family and all of those connections because you don't get everything you need from one person, right? And they're, um, it is wonderful, a wonderful way for kids to to grow up like that with all those connections. You know, as you were talking about the, the trans issues and parents mm-hmm. and kids coming into conflict, one of the things that I realized from these interviews that I do is that multi-generational families or extended families often have liaisons like uh, you go to an aunt that's able to communicate with the mom that or the or vice versa the mom can go to the aunt to have information translated and i really think that so much of the conflict between parent and child is in many ways a result of the changes that we've made to our society the very like the atomization of it being being something that makes it so it's much much harder to communicate messages or to keep social bonds strong. I think you're exactly right. And you know when I was talking about kids getting broken up by the child welfare system, um, often those are families. It's a it's a single mom with three kids, and she doesn't ha- she doesn't have that extended family support. Whereas if you have that, you know one part of the family maybe falls on hard times, and other people will help out also. So agree about the communication and also just that just that support. Oh yeah, you know? I think single parenthood, whether it's motherhood or fatherhood, like 
you know, we, I have a wife that's an amazing wife and like trying to keep two kids uh, alive and clothed and healthy <laughs> and is, is so overwhelming. It's very overwhelming. And you think about if you're doing that by yourself, you have very limited financial resources. Um, and so, you know, a common reason, this is a little off topic, but um, that children may come into foster care is because the um, a parent left them alone to go to work. And because they don't have childcare. Yeah. And yes, is that a bad decision? Sure. But if, you're just, if your choice is, if I don't go to work, I can't pay my rent and I don't have a place to live, or I do this while my kid is sleeping and hope and pray for the best. Do you know what I mean? Like, again, you have I mean, to choose I, between and, and you have no, we have no so good choices. And we have so much standards now. Like, when right? I was growing up, um, like, I, I was the middle child of seven, so there were always siblings around. But my mom could go to the grocery store or go to the next town over but now, if you leave a kid, I don't even know what the rules are, but they're pretty harsh now for when you can leave a child home alone. It's pretty strict. Sure, sure. And if something would happen, you know, that would come to the attention of authorities. And some communities are more scrutinized than other than other communities, quite frankly. Um, so I think that's that's very real. But you think in an extended family, as you were talking about with multi generations, your opportunity, you know, people watch your each other's kids, right? So that's it's much less of a concern that you really have those kinds of uh, tangible supports and emotional supports that you need. So let's talk about the government's role in in kids, right? We all obviously have the foster system. We have like wh when when law enforcement gets involved with whether or not somebody's being a good enough parent. Where else is the government interacting with the families in in a way that touches you? Right. I mean, that's a that is a big way. Um, I guess this the federal government actually has a program um, to to fund services for youth who are experiencing homelessness. So the way we're able to provide some of our services is through um, federal um, and local funding, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a second, um, to have those resources so that we can, um, you know, we, we certainly do a lot of fundraising, but also that um, some of those bigger dollars come from the government so that we can do the street-based outreach and emergency shelter and transitional living and all those things. We're also really fortunate um, in Missouri to have um, some county-based children's service funds, um, one of the largest being here in St. Louis County, but it actually, this model, funding model started in St. Charles County. It's spread to about 10 counties in Missouri where it's a local um, county-based sales tax that helps fund children's mental health services, which also um, includes services that I was talking about, the four um, for at-risk homeless youth, families who are struggling. Tell me about children's mental health support. Youth in Need provides a lot of counseling, for mental health counseling for kids of all ages, from preschool all the way up through young adulthood. And we do that in schools. We work in many, many schools um, throughout St. Louis County, St. Charles County, and Lincoln County. And then we also do counseling in the community. Um, we have a little office at a church in North County, um, at a rec center in St. Charles, and some other places. Um, as well as just a traditional office-based counseling. So for kids of all ages, any income, it's completely free. You just have to be a resident of those counties um, 
to be eligible. It doesn't go through insurance or anything. And we have master's level um, therapists trained as social workers or counselors who um, who provide those services to help kids with, I mean, kids today are in a mental health crisis. They really are nationally um, struggling with depression, anxiety, um, many, many mental health issues. We're fortunate to have the ability to serve literally thousands of those kids right here in the St. Louis area. What do you think is causing the mental health crises? That is a complicated question. It's probably um, many things. I think the pandemic contributed to that. Um, But it also, something interesting in the pandemic is it opened up a conversation about mental health issues. So I feel like with kids and adults, they're a lot more willing to talk about mental health issues. A lot of you know, people will openly talk about going to a therapist. And so I think that it has normalized it some or destigmatized. And so I think parents are more, um, feel more comfortable with seeking services. I think there used to be sometimes like if a teacher would say, you know, I'm worried about your kid, you might want to take them to a counselor. Parents would balk at that. Like, there's nothing wrong with my kid. It almost, there was some shame or something in your your child having some mental health struggles. Um, but I think a lot of that has really, um, has really changed and has really dissipated. So I think parents are more, um, have to ask and kids are, you know, I mean, we are educating kids a lot about social, about emotions and um, healthy emotions and relationships. And, and I think um, they are more verbal about saying, I'm struggling, I'm having some anxiety, I need someone to, to talk to. So I think there's external forces that are causing more of these issues. But I also think there's more openness and seeking help. I can see a parent being unsettled about, a, you know, a child going and speaking with another adult that you're not connected with that doesn't have the same, you know, background or sure. values as you. I can see that. I mean, certainly not something you hope for for your child. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I can see that too. And you wonder, what are they going to tell them? And, right. and there needs to be a level of confidentiality, right? It's uh, The child's not going to feel comfortable if they think every single thing they say is reported. So, you know, we really work with parents. So we don't just see the child in isolation. We also talk to the parent and um, um, really try to help them feel comfortable with the situation. And then often they will see, though, that they're, they may feel some anxiety, but they see that their child is benefiting by having someone to talk to, by having someone who's giving them, um, you know, some tangible coping skills. Like, here's what you can do when you, you know, here's a breathing exercise. Here's something you can do. And so they see the benefit of that. I think we won't know until we have the benefit of hindsight, but it seems like such an odd time to have so much uh, mental crises in America. I mean, it's clear. I, mm-hmm. I, I had a roommate in graduate school that had anxiety attacks, and there is no getting around it. He's right. not faking that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we are not faced with going to war, right? There would have been a time mm-hmm. where and a 17-year-old kid was looking at like, well, when I turn 18, I'm going to the draft, and then they're going to send me with a gun to go get shot at mm-hmm. and shoot at other people. And right. we don't have that right. going on. Right. So it, it's, it seems like it's hard to understand why we're at this place yeah. in society. Well, I know, you know, there have been studies about the alarming rate, rise in the suicide rate of young for young people. And they've found links to, um, you know, isolation, um, kids being more isolated. Um, you know, I think about when I was young, 
everyone my age, as soon as you turn 16, you got your driver's license because that represented freedom. And kids aren't getting their driver's license. Yeah, isn't that nuts? That's wild. But a lot of it is they can connect. They connect through their phones. They connect through their computers. But it's a different type of – and that can be life-saving for some young people. But it's also – there's a sense of isolation. And I think social media, there's there's – pros of social media that some young people find a sense of community, you know, through through social media, but also the comparisons. And I mean, you hear about kids who just, you know, they made a post and it only got so many likes and they're devastated, like their entire self-worth is based on, you know, how they are perceived in, in social media. And so I think that is a huge stressor for many young people. Yeah, there is something to that for sure, because Every, whether we had social media or not, there's always social credit, right? There's a hierarchy mm-hmm. that goes on. But one of the best parts about, um, you know, before you had the internet was that you could go home and the only way somebody could get to you was to call you up and have somebody answer the <laughs> phone and you had a cord on it. And now there's like, you know, giving a child a cell phone is the equivalent of making a pipe into the Garden of Eden and just saying like, Anyone can get access now mm-hmm. to this child, mm-hmm. and uh, that's got to have pressure on the on the mind of a child that didn't happen in the past. Oh yeah, the, some of the things that they're exposed to online, or the way that they can be um, be groomed or be um, be coerced online, are very scary. It's also interesting. I mean, I really do look at there's pros and cons because it's also um, there's ways that youth can pri- more privately get help, right? So. Um, St. Louis was uh, the first place to have um, a text-based, text message-based helpline for young people. So it's a hotline. It's a traditional hotline that you can call, but you can also text. And that was a great way that even a kid, you think about a youth who's experiencing trafficking or they're in an unsafe, it's some kind of unsafe situation that they can, you, you know, you may be able to, you can't make a phone call, but you could send a text message. And so they can interact with a master's level clinician um, through through texting, which is also, a gr- it's a great way to get, like I said, to get help. Yeah, you've mentioned trafficking, like sex trafficking mm-hmm. and grooming. Mm-hmm. It's something I see posters for in the airport. Mm-hmm. You're seeing this in your world? Like- Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, th- there's a lot of different ways that um, sex traffickers c- coerce and entice youth. Um and you know, through bribing them, through physical force, but the most common thing that we see is that they pretend they care about them. And our youth are so vulnerable, and so you know, they feel so uncared for that this adult, who has very you know evil intent for them, yeah. right, but pretends that they care, they buy them clothes, they and. It's things that you know you may look at and go, oh, that looks sketchy. But for young people, if they're they're starved for some attention and to feel valued, and this is somebody who's telling them that they're that they're attractive, that they, um, and giving them some attention, buying them meals, and so then that's just a couple steps away from them, um, you know, forcing them to, into the sex trafficking. Gosh, and that that exists the sex trafficking here. A hundred percent. It, you know, it's, I think people think it's these great big operations and we see it more as individuals who are engaging in this. But, you know, we've had, we had several young people (coughs) come to Youth in Need and they had been, they had all been being trafficked out of a car wash in North County. Whoa. 
So just a small prostitution mm-hmm. ring, and they're mm-hmm. finding their their uh, supply through children that mm-hmm. are homeless. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think the word trafficking, you know, I, I guess my impression of it without thinking about it too much is they're moving them from one place to some someplace bad, right? But you're describing it as, no, it's, it's happening. It they're getting them here right. and they're using them here. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's what we see, that they're trafficking them for. Um, you know, commercial sexual exploitation. So now tell me about your work. You you describe that you guys give people hope and you're, mm-hmm. you're giving them housing. So tell mm-hmm. me about somebody that has been in this in a bad situation and they encountered youth in need. Yeah, I actually just now when I was talking about um, sex trafficking, I was thinking about a young girl um, named Maya. Um, that's I'm making up the name. That's similar to her name, but it's not her name um, for confidentiality. But she, um, our our street outreach team had encountered her, and we could tell something was a little bit off. And we were able to get her um, alone um, to where she could feel safe and tell us what was going on. And um, you know, it wasn't uh, she. Uh, we we provided some things that she needed. You know, she needed some hygiene products. And we, we carried just different things that, that youth might need. And then just made a point to go back and and check in on her from time to time. Try to find her, get, you know, if she had a phone, get her phone number. Um, and just st- kind of start to have that, to build a relationship. And eventually, um, you know, she did share about the situation that she was involved in. And, you know, our staff over time were, you know, really able to show her that she was worth more and that that wasn't, that that was, you know, wasn't getting her anywhere in life and that she was really being being used. And it's, it's a harsh reality that this person that she thought cared about her was using her. Um, she came to our emergency shelter a couple of times. She uh, the the pull with this man was very strong, and she would <clears throat> at times get lured back into that. The money was good, um, and she would um, again. She didn't have other connections. She didn't have other relationships of people who cared about her other than our youth and need staff. <coughs> um, but eventually, she was able to completely break free of that situation, and we were able to get her set up in her own. Um, apartment, and the last I heard, she was in her twenties and was um, was working um, and getting ready to have a baby, um, but do, really doing doing well. And um, f- you know, I think the most important thing for us, she was seeing hope for a fu- her future and was feeling that she was worth more than she had thought before. So, how big is your organization? Um, as far as staff, we have, um, well, we started as a small little crisis shelter, but we have it, in St. Charles, we've grown to serve all of Eastern Missouri. So we have uh, 400 employees. 400 employees. <laughs> and um, our annual operating budget is about $30 million. Oh, my and goodness. And so we, and it's, we have a variety of programs. So besides the programs for um, youth experiencing homelessness, we do mental health counseling, as I was referencing. Um, we also do some foster care, case management. And one of our largest programs is actually um, for young children. We do early childhood through the Head Start program in some rural counties um, west of St. Louis, as well as in St. Charles and St. Louis City and St. Louis County. So working with um, infants, toddlers, and preschoolers in educational environments. We have early childhood centers and do home visitation services, and they're geared exclusively toward families who are experiencing poverty. 
So providing that super high quality early childhood education um, for families that um, can't can't afford that, and um, and really wrap around support for the for the whole family to help them work on what their goals are um, as individuals and and as a family to really wrap that support around that young person to make that child to make sure they have um, the everything they need to be fully ready um, to enter kindergarten. What, you know, you mentioned poverty, and mm-hmm. there's a certain station that you can reach in life where. Uh, poverty seems so far away as to almost not be real, right? You can imagine like, oh, if my bank account were lower, I'd have to make some different mm-hmm. choices. But like, what is living with poverty like in in, in Eastern Missouri these you days? You know, I um, the poverty level is something, the federal poverty level is something like, oh, I want to say it's around $20,000 for a family of four. And so when you think about that and what the cost of just housing is um, and the cost of transportation, I mean, especially outside of St. Louis, the rest of Missouri, there's very limited public transportation. You have to have a car. Yeah. You know, um, and even in St. Louis, I mean, they even like keep lowering the bus routes. Exactly. And, yeah, it's right. very difficult Not to a get great, through the city. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, the families that we see that are experiencing poverty, I mean, it's a constant just surviving day to day. They often may be living with someone else. um, So they're in a crowded living situation where they don't have privacy. It's substandard living. Um, It's very common that they're living in a place that becomes condemned and they become homeless and may lose their kids because of that. Um, We have families who are living in their their car. they, you know, rely on, um, the, I mean, there is a patchwork of services, um, but getting, you know, you have to get to them. You know, the services don't usually come to you. So maybe you can get food from a food pantry if you can find a way to get there within their hours um, and find a way to get back and either take your kids with you or find someone to watch your kids. So it's a constant, I mean, you know, I think people may think that people living in poverty are not that smart, but they're some of the smartest people I've ever met because the way that they have to figure out and maneuver to get through a day is, um, is I, I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I had a few years in my life where um, I didn't have a car. I had very little money. I was just out of college and I had to figure things out. And I was in a much more advantaged position. But um, the time poverty is the thing that is like overwhelming. You know, you think like if you don't have a car, going to the grocery store isn't just a 30-minute uh, you know adventure. This is like a multi-hour thing where you've got to time it out with the buses and get to the grocery store and how much can you carry. And then you've got to get it on a bus. And then getting at home now you have very limited time and now if you have kids on top of that and trying to get to work like the time poverty is the thing that you just you you is nearly impossible to get out of to gain traction yeah everything takes so much time and you know anywhere you go you have to wait in in a to get services you know you have to wait in a line. And, you know, I think um, sometimes I, I'll hear people in schools who are frustrated because a parent isn't doesn't seem very engaged in their child's education. But the parent is trying to, you know, <laughs> just survive. Or maybe they have a job, but it's during the school hours and they're, they're an hourly worker. They can't take off work to or they, if they do, they don't get paid um, to go to their child's school and, and things like that. And medical, it's hard, you know, it's 
Um, I know, I think physicians, for example, get frustrated that, you know, people don't make their medical appointments for their for their kids. And it's like, you don't know what you're, you know, I can make this appointment for three weeks from now, but I have no idea. Yeah, well, like, I'm going to have to figure that out. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it's very hard to to plan. So tell me about this work for you, right? It seems like you are working on a thing that you may be able to contribute, but you're never going to stop this problem. That is true. I think we will never stop like some of the reasons that people become homeless, although we certainly try to advocate and uh, look at things like child welfare reform and, and things like that, the systemic change that could um, that could help. When we think about ending youth homelessness, um, our goal is to have the right services at the right time so that the moment a child would become homeless, we have the service that they need. And so that's youth in need has been very intentional um, within our organization and working within the community to just build out that array of services. And it is insufficient, um, but to have services where we can meet people on the streets. We have emergency housing. We have longer-term supports, um, a variety of supports. Um, and again, not just with one organization, but within the community um, to truly be able to serve that youth wherever they enter the system and whatever their need is. Well, as you think about uh, the world going forward, rents are getting higher, right? As inflation continues to burn through parts of society, what do you see on the horizon for for uh, homelessness, particularly with youth? I mean, it's very concerning. It's youth homelessness is not a, a priority. I think when people think about homelessness, they think about um, some of the big cities that Los Angeles and Seattle and these huge homeless adult populations. And that is a huge issue. And I don't have the solutions <laughs> to that. Um, but I think youth often get left out of those of those conversations. And it's very different. The solutions for adult homelessness are very different than I think the solutions for youth homelessness. I think with adults, sometimes it is as simple as give them a place to live. With young people, they need a lot more. They need a lot more support. Like, I'm not just going to put a 16-year-old in an apartment and say, have at it, right? They need, um, they're still growing. They're still learning. They need, they've experienced trauma. They they need that emotional and tangible support. Well, if people wanted to learn more about Youth in Need uh, or kind of your organization, where should they go? Yeah, go to our website. It's www.youthinneed.org. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, Pat, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Vance. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Ah, ah, ah.